This is the second time in just over six months I've had the good fortune to do an interview with Jennifer Egan. Um, I have, uh, I have uh, bottomless interest in her, but I'm slightly worried she's going to get bored with me. Impossible. Uh, but we're, uh, we're, we're going to do our best. Um, the other one, if you're curious, by the way, was in a series I do called Conversations with Slate. And we did four, uh, uh, four relatively short video segments from that interview delving into aspects of Jennifer's work. Um, and as I say, we're going, to, we're going to talk in some detail about a visit from the, the Goon Squad, uh, which I have here. And uh, you know, one of the things about, about this book is that I don't know anybody who disliked it. You can get an argument going at any di dinner party if you just say, Jonathan Franson. And at least somebody will take the contrary position. But I've yet to, f you don't have to respond to this, but I've yet to find anybody who read this and wasn't impressed by it. Go. I'd love to know how I did that, because I would like to do that every time. I have no idea why that is. I've marveled at it, too. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people who don't like it, but it's, I, I, I don't know. I feel like there was some invisible inoculation um, that I, I managed to insert into this book without knowing it, and I, just, I think it was just sheer luck. Uh, or maybe it was, it was sort of fragmented and chaotic enough that there was something for everyone. I don't know. But it, it, is, it is a great surprise and certainly has not been my experience before. So I, I <laughs> wish I had the formula, but I think it was accidental. Yes, well, enjoy it while it lasts. The, um, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that, that among those who, who loved your book, just to warm us up a little bit here, were the, uh, was the Pulitzer Prize Committee. And uh, this year, they didn't love any book enough to award a prize. So just to completely put you on the spot and ask you to do something slightly impolitic, what would you have given the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction to in 2012? You know, I, I feel like I actually can't answer that only because I, I did not read comprehensively um, new fiction in that year. Um, I, I was a, a National Book Awards judge two years ago, and I, you know, having read everything that year, I felt a need to kind of move away from contemporary stuff. So I, I read you know, here and there and read some things that I really enjoyed, but I don't feel like I read enough to say this one was the best. I mean, one book I'll mention purely because I think it hasn't gotten any real attention, and, and I think it deserved a lot, um, was a book called Butterfly's Child by Angela Davis Gardner, which is just a spectacular historical novel um, taking off from the Puccini, where the Puccini opera ends um, with Butterfly's mixed-race child coming back to America with his um, white father. And she, it's just, it's really wonderful. I could not put it down, and I thought it was tremendous. Yeah. So I'll, I'll plug, I'll take this opportunity to plug that, not having read widely enough to say anything so more. So the, the nominees this year were, were Dennis Johnson, Train Dreams, Karen Russell's book Swamplandia, and David Foster Wallace's posthumously published and un, not quite finished, The Pale King. Um, what do, you, do you have any sense of what the, the committee was saying by not choosing from among those three finalists? Was it saying that none of these books are broad enough in their appeal the way yours was? Or were they, I don't know, I was sort of mystified by it. You know, I, do, I really don't know. I mean, yeah. so it's pure speculation. Um, I mean, I think there's a kind of built-in possibility of this happening just due to the nature of the structure of the Pulitzer Prize. So, for example, with the National Book Awards, there are five judges. They pick five finalists and, you know, Obviously, they've had enough agreement to make that decision together. But with the Pulitzers, there are three judges. They pick 
three finalists, and then it goes to the board, which had no part in picking those finalists. Right. So it seems like every year or often some category goes empty as a result of that, and this year it was editorial writing as well. Yeah. I think it, it seemed to cause a lot more of a stir when it was fiction than when it was one of the newsier categories. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but anyway, I mean, so I don't know. Was it that there was not a majority, which I know is required? I, I mean, if I had to just guess, I would say that there was it, was, it was that structural possibility playing out, which is that there's a gap in taste between what the board is looking for and what the judges came up with. But I'm guessing that everyone felt pretty rotten about it because, you know, it doesn't, it, it, there's this huge apparatus that kicks in when you win a prize like this, which is quite amazing and you know someone could have enjoyed that this year and they won't and I, I can't imagine anyone feels very good about it I have to guess that they tried to avoid this outcome really hard yeah. and for whatever reason weren't able to but I, I do think it, I would hesitate to say that it was a, a bigger comment I think my guess is for whatever reason they could not pick one of these three I, yes I mean they're inscrutable they don't say why but there is a, the Pulitzer does make a point unlike some other awards, of being having generalists who make the final choice. The people who vote to pick among the finalists are not writers necessarily or literary people. And there does seem to be this persistent issue about whether there is liter too much literature is, is written for other writers and is speaking within a community as opposed to speaking to the wider society. And clearly the Pulitzer thinks of its role as singling out works that speak society. You know, I, to my mind, all three of those finalists would, fall, would, would satisfy that criterion. So I don't, I mean, again, this is, we're kind of, it's Kremlinology, mm -hmm. but you know, did they sit there and say none of these fulfills that criterion? I, I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. It would, I wish we could find out. <laughs> all right, well, you gave, you gave your Pulitzer, so, so let's move on. <laughs> so I realized that one of the things I didn't ask you when we spoke last time is who is Peter M., and why did you dedicate the book to him? You know, you are killing me with these questions. <laughs> I feel I really should have had a warning. Oh, um, I am going to just come out and answer that. I can't be the that. first to I ask can't, you. You know, you practically are, and it's so <laughs> funny that you're asking me on a stage, but whatever. Here I am in New York. Um, it is my longtime therapist. There you go. Here I am, like... <laughs> I mean, I feel like, how can I not answer it? I, can I refuse to answer it? I guess I could have, but that would have been even more intriguing. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's a, a wonderful person who I think really helped me a lot over many years. And somehow, especially because the book opens, you know, with a, a chapter in which someone is both in therapy and, you know, undergoing an experience... I guess, and, and also because I guess it's the nature of therapy to sort of look at your life over time and see what kinds of patterns emerge um, in doing so. It just seemed like the right moment to honor this person that I, I really feel I owe a lot. That's very nice. Well, that doesn't put you in a very small category in New York. <laughs> I'm sure true. in this group. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. It's, the character Sasha, which is part of what I want to talk about in this book, she is in therapy through part of the book. I know that, that much of what you write about is drawn in various elliptical ways from experiences of yours. I mean, is, that, is, the, is the therapy modeled on what you have experienced? Um, I, 
I guess to some degree, I mean, in no way is cause the therapist that I made up like mine exactly, but he's also not a major character. Right. Um, I, I guess, you know, to some degree, yes. Yeah. He's, you know, a little inscrutable, um, not providing a lot of details about his own life. It's not the kind of, I mean, I hear about therapy where people are like exchanging book recommendations and recipes and it, my therapy wasn't really <laughs> like that. Um, so, so yes, in its, in its rough outlines, I would say yes. Yeah. So um, some people have used the term experimental to describe this book. I don't, I don't think that's, it doesn't feel experimental to me, but it is very unusual in form in that it has, uh, it's made up of discrete stories which can stand on their own, yet which fit together in various ways. But the chronology and the characters are very complicated in terms of who shows up where, when, and how you put the pieces together. Um, so I just want to ask you first, t t talk to us a little bit about what kind of novel it is and how you saw it when you were working on it. Well, I'm always, I'm still reluctant to use the word novel um, when I talk about the book. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. I, and, and with the hardback, I didn't even have it, it on the say cover. Novel on yeah, it, yeah, because I was worried that it it wouldn't kind of fulfill people's expectations of what a novel was. And so by calling it a novel, we might cause people to dislike it who might otherwise have liked it if they weren't expecting it to be a novel. Yeah. Um, however, when Hardback basically didn't sell for the first four months, um, the publisher <laughs> informed me that we were actually going to call it a novel in the paperback, and it wasn't really a question. It was just a fact. Oh, so I must um, have a first edition here. It doesn't say novel. None of the, none of the uh, Hardbacks do. Okay, yeah. Um, so anyway, so I, basically, I mean, because the writing of the book was in a way sort of accidental, I, and this, this is not normal for me. Usually I, I do realize I'm writing a book when I start a book. But with this one, because I was kind of avoiding a different book and just started writing what I thought were a few stories to kind of entertain me while I stalled on writing this other book, by the time I realized that it was a book, certain basic decisions had already been made. I think this is the perfect way to write books, I've decided, but it seems to be impossible <laughs> to replicate. I feel like, can't I just suddenly be writing a book and already know what kind of book it is? Um, but anyway, sort of the most, you know, quote-unquote experimental aspects of it were already true by that point, which were, you know, each, each chapter was about a different person. There's certainly nothing experimental about that. I think the only thing that, that maybe is unusual, really, is that um, the chapters don't feel like they're part of one book. There's not that uniformity of tone and mood that, that we often find in so-called linked story collections. And I guess in my mind, well, first of all, that was already true true when I decided it was a book, and I was enjoying that aspect of it, so I thought, let's continue with this. But I think, too, my feeling was, if it's going to be in parts, why not make the parts as different from each other as possible? It just seemed more interesting. You know, you lose a lot when you give up the kind of central access, the, the central orientation of a novel. There's a danger of fragmentation and a lack of momentum, and you know, you're asking people to start over again and again. But at the same time, it seemed like one possible advantage that I wouldn't have otherwise was a much greater array of tones and, and modes, let's say. And I guess I, I felt like, why not run, why not get, ha have it be tragic and farcical? To try to encompass all of that in one book seemed fun. Yeah. It, it sounds like a very organic process in terms of how the, the book em emerged. Was there, at, at what point was there a structure, an outline in your head of how, how the book would unfold? 
Well, there was a structure early on. It turned out to be the wrong structure, but it did make me feel like I was working in a in a an organized fashion. Um, and that was, again, determined by the way those first three stories that I wrote had emerged, which was going backward in time. So I thought, okay, it's a book that goes backward. Not a new idea. Charles yeah. Baxter did it beautifully. Um, and Martin Amos has done it, and I'm sure many others. Um, but I thought, that's okay. I think it's, it's cool. I'll do that. Yeah. Um, so that was what I thought as I worked. I didn't write them in a backwards order, but I assumed that that's how they would read. And then one of, uh, I had a real shock when I read it through in that order, kind of close to the time that I thought it was done, and discovered that it was actually really flat. Like, it, it didn't gather momentum at all. You know, the hope was that each piece would have its own pleasures and payoffs, and then on top of that, there would be a kind of combustion, was how I hoped it would be, um, when all of them were juxtaposed and, you know, a, a kind of chemical reaction would occur. And, it, and, and the whole would be more than the sum of the parts, which is obviously what you hope for in any book. But what I found when I read it through backwards was that that was not true at all. It was actually the opposite. It, it lost energy. Um, and later chapters just seemed bad because we were sort of not moving in an energetic way toward them. So at that point, I realized that you know, maybe I hoped my backward structure was the problem because that meant it could be solved. And I noticed that there were a lot of ways in which this backwards movement was actually undercutting a lot of the surprises for the reader and also just kind of satisfactions of curiosity. So, for example, in Chapter 2, a music producer named Benny um, briefly recalls his years as a punk rocker. It, it literally passes in two sentences in San Francisco. Well, that, the time to hit the reader with the chapter in which we see him doing that would ideally be right away when they were that... You know, the memory of those two sentences still exists in the reader's mind. But in my backwards order, we had to get from 2006 to 1979, and it took like eight chapters. So then by the time the reader got there, there was no memory of any of that, and it just sort of felt like, huh, okay. Um, so that was, that was a structural idea that had to go, but it but did you orient then, me. You then sort of reshuffled the deck. I mean, you had these, these somewhat modular pieces, and putting them in a different order significantly changed the, the feel of the book and, the, you think, the interest of the book. I hoped it would. I wasn't yeah. totally sure it would, but I, I guess what I felt was that since I had... What had really led me through the writing of it was my own curiosity, kind of moving from one thing to the next, what I felt was that that actually had to happen for the reader, too, and that my sense of gauging that curiosity and satisfying that curiosity had to be my guiding principle in organizing it and not any notion about chronology. Huh. So if, if someone read it in a different order than the one you presented, how different do you think the experience would be? Would, would that be okay? I mean, would the, is this order absolutely essential to it now, do you think? I think, it's, I, I think I can say pretty authoritatively that it would not be as good. Uh-huh. But, you know, people can do what they want, of course. <laughs> um, in, in the UK, there, there's actually an app for the ebook version of this that has a shuffle feature. <laughs> and um, and I, I was a little worried about that because I said, you know, I don't want anyone shuffling this thing until they've read it. So supposedly they have to read it my way first. But, you know, Before you're I allowed to remix doubt. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a very interesting idea. But there, there, some of these chapters seem to me to stand particularly well on their own. That is, if you took them out. And I guess for me they tend to be the things that I remember most from the book, my favorite chapters. But the safari... 
Um, which did you was that published separately? They all were except the last two. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that was actually. I mean, I had three rules as I moved forward through the book. After I finally realized I was writing a book, one was that each chapter would be about a different person. One was that it would have this different mood and tone and feel. And the third was that it would stand completely on its own because I, you know, I'm asking the reader to start over every time in a way. So just in terms of symmetry, it seemed appropriate that there would be a total payoff every time. So that was the goal. I mean, if I if I felt like something couldn't stand on its own, it, it, that was that was a bad sign. Yeah. Um, and so they they all pretty much do, even the last two, I think. Yeah. Um, but as you say, some some maybe more strongly than others. T- talking about the jumbled chronology, um, we've just been talking about the sort of later processes of the book when you'd written the bulk of it and then rearranged it. Take us back to the very first instinct that produced the book. I mean, was there, a, was there a moment or an image or what was it? What did this book for you, what seeded it? What did it come from? Well, in a way, there are two answers to that. And I usually only talk about one of them. But if, if, if the whole, if, I guess if the point of this really is to kind of get into the yeah. deep craft issues. And we've already talked about your psychiatrist, yeah. so you might as well go. Why well, hold yeah. back? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the thing is that actually there were four chapters that I had written years before. And they had nothing to do with each other. And they were just four stories. I had published all of them. Um, one was in Harper's, one was in Tin House. Um, and I had often thought, you know, what will I do with these? It kind of bothered me that I didn't really feel like I was going to write a story collection. And I, it, I, I just felt like I wanted them to have some sort of life in a book, but I didn't know what that book would be. Once I found myself, you know, inadvertently moving into writing these other stories... I began fairly quickly to feel ways in which they could connect to these earlier four, which in a way was really odd because the earlier four couldn't have been more different from and each other. And weren't connected to each other in any way. Not even way. slightly. Yeah. But the feeling, the metaphor that I've used in it, it really kind of was like this, was this sense of these islands that were completely far apart and beginning to sense a kind of landmass under them that connected all of them. It was actually a very exciting process. A lot of it took place in the shower, oddly. <laughs> I mean, for some reason, that was the place where I felt like I could make connections. And one of the, it's sort of strange, one of the older pieces um, was the one called Goodbye, My Love, which is um, where Sasha is a runaway in Naples and her uncle comes to find her and she steals his wallet. And the thing that's so strange about it was that I had then written the first chapter of this in which a woman takes a wallet, never once thinking of that earlier story. Huh. And I, I had to change very, very little other than the name of the character. It was just clearly Sasha. To make her the kleptomaniac. Exactly. But when you wrote the first story, she was not a kleptomaniac in Naples. No, it was she just steals this wallet as yeah. part of her you know, encounter with her uncle. So those kinds of connections would occur, and it was really exciting. I really had this sense of something larger than I was taking shape, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Was it really the, the characters that connected the stories at that stage? Um, yes, I would say so. But it, another thing that's interesting, like another character that we meet in a few chapters in this book is called Lou, who's a very, you know, a, a, a problematic kind of reckless music producer. Um, I had already, one of the other four that I had written is called You Plural, which is Lou on his deathbed, basically, with these women visiting him, who he clearly has a lot of history with. 
And so I, I saw Lou that way before I ever knew him as a younger man, um, which, is, which is odd. I think if you read the book, you would really not expect that. Um, but it, it, was, it had an odd backwards kind of, uh, it moved in a crab-like way, this book. It, it was it sort of, um, there was nothing linear about the way it was made. And I guess that's kind of reflected in, in the way it reads. Yeah. So talk about um, Sasha as a character and, and how she emerged, because, you know, it's, it's, she's, I mean, I guess she's the, the, the biggest character in the book, right? Sasha and Benny. I would Benny, say it's but, Benny, too. Yeah, yeah, Sasha and Benny, but, but you, get these, you get these pieces of her at very different parts in her life, when she's arguably a very different person. You get her when she's living in Naples and is kind of a sort of prostitute and is sort of gotten in all sorts of trouble as a young woman. You then get her back in New York when she's working at Benny. You get her in therapy, I guess, at a later stage. And then you get her when she's uh, living off in the desert later when she has a family. How did, how did you think about Sasha? You know, it's, that's one of the harder questions for me to answer just generally about character because I don't, I definitely, I don't use anyone I know. Yeah. So somehow... I seem to come up with people. In fact, I'm really bad at trying to use people I know. I wish I could use them, but I'm sure most people I know are happy that I can't. Um, <laughs> but I, I seem to go kind of cold when I when I have yeah. an actual corollary in reality as a person. Places, times, that those I can use, but people I can't. Um, so, I mean, Sasha basically came to me, I guess, you know, she had in some way, I had been interested in someone like her at that earlier point when I wrote Goodbye, My Love. But... You know, the real inception of the book was seeing a wallet in a bathroom and when I was having dinner with my mom at the Regency Hotel huh. and thinking and, and having, having a long history of being robbed, which is kind of typical of me. I love to, to take the other side of, of a, an encounter that I know very well, <laughs> all too well. Um, and so seeing this wallet kind of brought back a number of thefts that I've experienced, huh. um, one in particular in which um, the thief actually phoned me posing as a Citibank employee after stealing the wallet and actually got me to give her my PIN number, <laughs> which was really a drag. <laughs> because at that point, she not only had my wallet, but she actually got hold of everything I had in my checking account. And because I had actually spent, you know, like 10 minutes on the telephone with this person and actually wept during that process about my sadness about having been robbed and received her apparent sympathy for how difficult it was to go through such a thing, um, I found myself a little obsessed with her for a while after that. And I kept thinking, you know, who was she? And for some reason, the particular issue that, that really attracted me was like, did she actually feel any sympathy? I really wanted yeah. to know the answer to that. <laughs> whether um, whether it's like a good actor, she really had to play the part. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it was some weird Is effort to... Is she a to... method criminal? Or just a... <laughs> exactly. So um, anyway, I think somehow in seeing that wallet and having a brief fantasy of taking it, because there it was, you know, it just so vulnerably exposed... Um, I reconnected with my interest in a thief of long before and decided to just write from that moment. And I didn't know anything about this thief at all other than that she would be female and take the wallet in a lady's room. And then all these things about Sasha emerged very spontaneously. I mean, the most radical of which really is the idea that she's not taking the wallet out of need but really out of a kind of compulsion. That 
sort of came to me in the moment. And I, I don't know anything about kleptomania, actually. I don't know if that's really the way it works. Although no one has stepped forward to say that I got it totally wrong. So I, I have to assume that it, maybe it's not completely unlike what that is. Um, but, you know, the fact that Sasha was in therapy and other kind of basic things about her just seemed to emerge kind of naturally. And so then it was just a matter of, of thinking about that person at, at different times. A lot of that history was, was already contained in, in the present that I described with the wallet. We know her father's disappeared, um, I, I, you know, at, not, not for a while, but at some point I realized that I actually did have another piece about her as a younger person. The last thing to fall into place was her future. And I really wanted so badly to write about that, especially because I already had a chapter about Benny, the other main character, in his future, and I didn't like the thought of not letting us see Sasha, but I couldn't figure out a way to get to her because of my rule about writing about someone more than once. Although two other times I tried to write about Sasha unsuccessfully. In one, she actually finds her father, um, and that was, I thought that would be so exciting, but it was actually really unsuccessful. I, I couldn't make it work at all. Um, and then another one, uh, she is in college, and it, and it was from her point of view, but that, that didn't work, and it, it morphed very gradually into a chapter called Out of Body. Huh. So anyway, I guess the answer is, I feel like with character more than almost anything, it has to feel kind of spontaneous and... I have to feel like the, the few things I'm saying about a person suggest another reali- a larger reality that feels coherent. Um, I, I feel like I can, I, you know, I, right now I'm struggling with a, with a new book, and what I'm finding is that often I don't have that sense of the larger whole that's suggested by a couple of details about someone, and, and I really need to have that. Yeah. That's sort of how it works for me. Um, but uh, but the decisions about character feel pretty organic. But it's a, the, uh, you, you said the, the number of things I want to pick up on that was so interesting. But with, with Sasha and Benny, because you get them at these very different points in their lives when they are very, seem like very different people, I wonder how that works in a way you had to go through the process of the character's development, including all the stuff that you don't show. So living with a character, developing a character, you're actually dealing with several different characters and concealing the connective tissue in between, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that not just with character, but in every aspect of this book, there was always a sense of um, needing to kind of start fresh and yet maintain this sense of connective tissue to other parts of the book, which all of which at least for me, felt ideally suggested by whatever details were there. I could feel this larger hole around it, which isn't to say that I didn't bumble and fumble, because I really did, and there were things I still am annoyed that I couldn't pull off. But, you know, I was trying to find a way to, you know, through ideally the minimum, because it's all about compression, really, um, just evoke something larger, and then once I felt it there, I felt content to move on. I just wanted to make to to bring it into being, even somewhat invisibly, yeah. and not have to spell it all out. All right. Something else you just said. You didn't you didn't make a point of learning anything about kleptomania. I've heard you say things like that a lot, as in I don't actually know anything about music. I don't know anything about this, and. You, of course, anyone reading the book would think you had actually spent a lot of time 
intently studying and learning about these things or that you already knew about them. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, there's some novelists who, you know, who take that kind of verisimilitude very seriously and would, if they were going to write about kleptomania, they were going to make sure they understood what kleptomaniacs did and didn't do and who they were and weren't. Well, I, if I were going to call it kleptomania, right. I would certainly research it exhaustively. Oh, that's but interesting. The term never occurred. No, to me. because yes. maybe that's not what she has. Right. You know, I mean, I, I guess I'm, first of all, very reluctant to ever diagnose characters because I feel like there's nothing in it for me. I mean, the point of... <laughs> well, they're all yours. You can do whatever you want to <laughs> the them. The point of diagnosis is to medicate, and I really don't have to deal with that aspect of their lives, thank God. So people often ask me, you know, well, gee, is so-and-so, you know, um, bipolar, for example, Moose in Look at Me. I'm asked that a lot. But I don't know. I mean, I'm interested in the way his mind works, but I, I'm not his doctor, so I don't really know. So um, <laughs> with kleptomania, that's why I didn't research it. The music stuff, I, I absolutely did. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, to the extent that I needed to. The punk rock scene in San Francisco, I, I had memories of. Um, but even that, I, I shored up with, with some research. And then, you know, I mean, most of the, the music research came in in just that second chapter, which I wrote still not even knowing it was a book. Um, which is Benny, the music producer, just going through his day. It's amazing how much you actually do need to know to just show a person at work. Yeah. I mean, that's... The, and, and I would never try to fake that. Okay, I, would I feel ne- better now. I would never get away <laughs> with it. Um, no, I spent hours on the telephone with a, a, a mixer who was amazingly helpful. I mean, I didn't even understand the difference between analog and digital recording. I really knew nothing. And the thing that was so great about talking to him was uh, he answered my technical questions, but in the course of that, he gave me a sense of how... I mean, I just listened to the words he used and the phrases and certain parts of the nomenclature of his business. And I think above all, I had such a sense, a vivid sense of the before and after feeling that really permeates the music industry, before being before the music industry went into a free fall and after being now and, and, you know, dating back several years in which the industry is trying to figure out how it's going to function in a digital world. And I think the poignancy of that really affected me. And, and I think that's one reason that music ended up being so important in the book. Huh. So the, the research, I think, brought some of that about. Jennifer, one of the most striking chapters of, of, for the, of the book for a lot of people who read it is the, the one that you wrote in PowerPoint, um, which is, I, I guess, told in the voice of, of Sasha's daughter uh, at the later stage in life, and she's, she's essentially telling you the story of the family and the, the brother who has some disability, some emotional disability. Um, how, did, how did that come to you as a, as a creative idea? Um, it, it, very circuitously in a way. I mean, I started with a strong desire to work in PowerPoint, and that actually arose, uh, I remember specifically, in the election um, in the summer of 08, when the Obama campaign suddenly pulled ahead. There was a lot of talk about how and why that had happened, and repeatedly a particular PowerPoint presentation within the campaign was cited. And all my reaction to this was, PowerPoint. It was like a light bulb. I thought, I have to write fiction in PowerPoint. Yeah. Now, I had, I, did not, I had never used PowerPoint, and I honestly was not entirely sure what it was. I, mean, <laughs> I knew that it resulted in, you know, 
people putting bullet points in front of other people. But I, I wasn't quite sure what the organizing principle of it was. And so to find out, I, I reached out to some friends in the corporate world and said, I'm, I'm so eager to learn more about what you do. Um, do you have any PowerPoints? And so they, they sent them, at which point I discovered that I actually didn't even own PowerPoint. And, uh, and didn't have enough laptop, uh, memory on my laptop to, um, to, to hold it. So at that point, I thought, okay, you know what? This is just getting way too complicated. I'm going to do it by hand. So my first PowerPoint attempt, because I do write fiction by hand generally, was that I drew rectangles on, on yellow, on legal paper, and sat down sort of waiting for, for lightning you to like strike. You storyboarded it. Yeah. Kind of, but I, I'm not... Actually, that I, I, it didn't work at all. Yeah. Suffice it to say, I kept I kept veering into prose. So, I, I thought I was giving up on it, but then I the idea kept intriguing me. So I finally actually bought Memory, bought the program, started <laughs> working in it. And I another big problem with PowerPoint, which I immediately saw, was that it of course feels very corporate and kind of cold. It's not an inviting form. It doesn't. Right. I mean, anybody think, would have said it's the enemy of literature. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's not. It, it it doesn't really. It's it's a vibe kill. Let's yeah. say. Um, <laughs> so my thought was, well, but I wasn't even worrying about that. I just thought, why does someone tell a story in PowerPoint? That's yeah. a big question. If you're going to write something in PowerPoint, so I came up with an answer that I thought was great, but the problem was it was it was way too obvious, which was a corporate person might tell their story in PowerPoint. So I had a, um, a corporate person telling a story in PowerPoint. And, it, and of course, this did not solve the problem of it feeling very corporate. In fact, it actually made it much worse. So mm. that went nowhere, too. So I was kind of giving up. I mean, I sold the book without a PowerPoint. And um, <laughs> I was uh, upset about it, but I was obviously the only one who felt the lack of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, but there was actually another problem, which we've touched on earlier, which was that I also hadn't found a way to visit Sasha in her future. I couldn't seem to get to her. I couldn't find a way to do it that was fresh because I was very sure that I had pretty much exhausted all of the kind of conventional narrative approaches that I had access to. And then all of a sudden it came to me that maybe one of her kids could narrate it and then it wouldn't feel so corporate. So after I sold the book without telling my editor who was expecting light revisions, I went into a PowerPoint <laughs> frenzy. And that's pretty much all I did all summer to the horror of my family. Um, because, I, of course, I didn't even know how to use the program. So there was a very steep learning curve. I mean, at first I was just doing a lot of bullet points. But, you know, you get to realize PowerPoint is a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, once I was actually working in PowerPoint, I think I began to finally understand why I had wanted to do it. Because before it was just a, a desire that I thought was driven by a need for new forms. But in fact... There were, there were even better reasons than that. I mean, PowerPoint is, is sort of a microcosm of the way the book as a whole works. It's discrete moments separated by pauses. That's all it is. It's 50% pauses. And the book is kind of the same thing. I mean, there are all these gaps in the book. I had another obsession that I had been trying to work into the book unsuccessfully, which was pauses in songs. Yeah. 
That had come it's about. A great bit. That I had come about, um, come upon that in some of my research of the music industry. A fantastic book called "So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star" by Jacob Schlichter of the band Semisonic, whose mega hit from 1998 is called "Closing Time," and it has a pause. <laughs> and so um, he described the the insertion of this pause into the song. And for some reason, as soon as I read that, I thought, "That's amazing. That's so interesting." Um, so I had tried to work in pauses in songs, but it actually wasn't that easy. I mean, I had an academic writing a book about it in another failed chapter. Anyway, once I was in PowerPoint, suddenly it, it became easy to deal with that topic. Um, and so I think there's a way in which just structurally it made sense in this book. It also, something I didn't think about but was pointed out later, it functions as a kind of classic pause in the book itself. It's close to the end. It's an interruption of the narrative flow of a sort, but then the narrative flow resumes. So I think that, that you know, all of those reasons made me interested. Um, and, I, and one final thing I would say about it is that it's actually very hard to write fiction in PowerPoint because it, it makes, <laughs> I mean, it's, it feels corporate and all that, but also it's very hard to represent action with PowerPoint because there's no continuity. So a lot of the things we rely on in fiction become almost impossible to do. And, um, but I think that the chapter that I ended up writing in PowerPoint would have been really unsuccessful written in a conventional way because it's very sentimental first of all and very little actually happens but because of the coldness of powerpoint and the um atomized nature yes. of it it actually allowed me to tell this very sweet story that i don't think i could have gotten away with otherwise because it's descriptive of a of a moment in time as opposed to an unfolding plot line yeah, and, and it's so cold that, yeah. that you can get very sweet without it cloying the way it would in conventional prose. Yes, well, no one can ever write a chapter in PowerPoint again, or a novel. It's, you, you, you'll be the first and last to do that. Well, I, I include myself in the group who will not attempt it, because <laughs> once was enough. <laughs> so when you talk about this process, you're, you're very witty talking about it, and it all seems to take on this air of inevitability, but... Uh, I know that you, you have talked about finding this process very, very hard. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way in which writing, this creative process, this part of the process, not the, not the sitting there and just doing it every day, but the, but the, but, but the more expansive part of it, it challenges you and is difficult. I think the thing that's the most challenging for me is that I really don't know I don't have a clear plan when I start, and therefore, I really, on some level, I'm, I'm basically incompetent at the beginning. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I know that I haven't done it before, because if I feel like I've done it before, then I don't really want to do it. Um, I feel a kind of aversion to it. But I often have a sense that it just will be a disaster. Um, I really felt this most with my novel, Look at Me, which was such a departure for me. And it is a pretty weird book. I think it's actually more experimental than Goon Squad in certain ways. And I remember with that one really thinking, this is just not allowed. I mean, people are going to be, they're going to think I'm crazy. Um, so there was a sense of, um, of not knowing what I was doing and, and when, it, what, when it was going well, and this is always true, there's a kind of private thrill in just the sense of doing something that's fun and working. But of course, there are many times when it isn't like that. And in those times, I would feel in a kind of free fall. 
Um, with Goon Squad, I guess the corollary was the, the question, I mean, I knew I had some pieces that w had strengths, but the big question was, would the whole amount to anything? And I would feel very worried when, when I felt that it wouldn't, and when I had parts that I, I couldn't make work, the implications of, first of all, it's just horrible to, to, to not be able to make something work. It's, it's, it's like viscerally unpleasant. I, I feel I, it makes me very depressed when my writing's not going well. I feel like there's a, a way in which writing well is like a kind of a deep pulse that I need to feel happening to just feel at ease in the world. So there's already the problem of not having that, which is a drag. But with this, with, with Goon Squad, it, there would be a kind of added fear, which was that my big plan just wasn't going to work. You know, if this piece couldn't work, then maybe the whole thing couldn't work. So it's always this question about whether it will work or just be a failure. And then, you know, if you really have a kind of catastrophic imagination like I do, you know, you can, you can bundle all kinds of things, all kinds of consequences into that failure. Um, so, for example, with Look at Me, because I had actually waited to have children until that book was done, when I would think it was really bad, I would think, oh, my God, and now I also haven't had children. <laughs> and now my husband's probably going to actually divorce me because what if I can't have children? And so it would all snowball into a real picture of disaster. Yeah. Um, and then with The Keep, I had actually then had two children, but I would think, like, oh, my God, this is the first new book I've written since I had children, and I'm, now I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> so all I can do now is have children. I've, like, I've, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and I... And I can already feel with this new one that it's going to be, you know, oh, my God, I, I won a prize, and now it's totally ruined my writing ability. Like, I can't do it. Now all I am just a has-been. So whatever. You know, you find all kinds of ways. Yeah. To, we find ways to torture ourselves. <laughs> but I don't know. For some reason, I, 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 I find that kind of insecurity you're talking about sort of essential to good writing. I mean, you know, we all know bad writers, and they're usually a lot more confident than good writers. <laughs> Right. Uh. Well, in my case, I was most confident about a book that um, my first attempt at a novel, I thought it was a novel, um, which, I had, which no one had read. I was working in a vacuum. And, um, and in retrospect, I sort of hadn't read it either. Um, I mean, I had written it, <laughs> and it looked really good across the room, all you know, printed out and stacked up. But um, I felt a, a real confidence. And, and when I imagined coming to New York with this thing, I sort of, I imagined a kind of ascension. I thought I would sort of arrive and <laughs> things would just happen and, and this book would be the thing that would make them happen. And I mean, the reality really could not have been further from that. It was a disaster. When I would send it to people, they would become unreachable. Um, uh. Friends, you know, eluded me. My mother briefly eluded me um, because no one knew what to say because it was unreadably bad. So mm -hmm. I guess, you know, that was my one, uh, it was my one bout of confidence. It didn't get me too far, so. <laughs> yeah. But at, at what point do you give up on something that's not working? I mean, as opposed to then, now, I mean, if, you, to, if you're a little bit objective about it, you know you're capable of writing very well. But sometimes there are these things, like you talked about the chapter where Sasha meets her father, that you gave up on it. At what point do you say, I'm, going, I'm, I'm not going to try anymore? It's such a good question. Um, I think that the way it seems to work with me is I keep trying and trying because sometimes th something cannot work, and then suddenly I can find a way to make it work. So I, I try not to give up so early that I haven't allowed time for that to occur. Um, but I think one of the big 
um, I, I, sort of the pivot of those decisions is often just the question of whether I actually am interested anymore. If I really feel uninterested and unwilling, that's, I think, a sign that no matter what I do, it's probably not going to work. And I, I have a writing group that I rely on pretty heavily. Some peers, um, we meet fairly regularly. I often bring in things in a very raw state when they're kind of bad by any standard. But the question I'm, I'm interested in is just sort of, does it feel alive? And I've had experiences of, I actually remember this happening um, with the chapter that I was trying to write about Sasha in college from her point of view, where I brought it in and they were very nice about it. I mean, they were, they were actually interested in it. They felt like there was stuff I could do with it, but I walked out of there feeling like I, I was finished. So something, I felt a kind of exhaustion, a lack of excitement about problem solving that, I, that it, to me was a sign that there was just, I was never going to get there. And I had other, I had several other chapters like huh. that. Um, but it, it's, and, and, and I, I don't have any regrets about, about any of that. Um, although it, it, I still think that I might find ways to come at some of that material differently. Um, but certainly what I was doing wasn't working and I wasn't interested. Yeah. So you, you have a writer's group. It's a kind of non-academically based workshop with other writers who read each other's work. Yeah. So we've, we've, in some form or another, we've been meeting for like 20 years, some really? of us. Yeah. 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 It started as a class, actually, where we were all paying someone to be the kind of leader. And then at a certain point, she wanted to bring work in. So that, at that point, we all felt, including her, that there was really no reason for us to be paying her. And so we, we you know, stopped that part, and we've just met as a group. And you know, people have come and gone. But I think the essential part of the process is that we don't look at anything on a page. It's all, um, it's all oral. We just read aloud. Really? And um, part of that is, you know, there's no homework. There's no kind of reading late at night. And then it, as much as anything, trying to sound like you read it more carefully than you did or any of that. It's just, we just all have the experience in the moment and we all react. Yeah. And there's a kind of, it's amazing what, what good triage that that allows for. You know, it's, it's hard to get caught up in little things when you're just hearing something for the first time and having to take a few notes and respond. So I rely very heavily on them. And to some degree, it really is the legacy of that experience of writing in a vacuum for two years and getting so completely off the track. I just don't want to ever have that happen again. Are they all professional writers? Um, n- more or less, uh-huh. yes, but in different areas. Playwright, poet, um, just, you know, someone who works more on essays. Um, but we're, we're a, quirky, a quirky little group. What's the etiquette like? I mean, how does one say now to Jennifer Egan, you know, I didn't like that? Or, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, would be, it would be terrible if one couldn't say that. I mean, uh. the group would kind of not function anymore. I think the key, as with any workshop, is really... Um, uh, to be on someone's side deeply in the sense of really wanting them to succeed. And I feel a kind of, I feel a pride in what they do because I feel like I kind of helped from the start. So there's almost a proprietary feeling that starts to emerge, which I think is good, which is we all have a stake in this stuff working. On the other hand, you don't want mom saying, you know, it's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so it's, 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 that, it's the, the um, finding that balance between general support but specific, you know, honesty and willingness to say, say the truth. Yeah. You're a very disciplined writer, aren't you? I have that sense. In the sense um, of regular hours, you know. It doesn't, I, I would say not as much as you might think. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I can be, let's say, 
I, I feel that I've been much less so in the last year. Um, I, maybe it's partly because I feel like my job became more selling than anything else, but I feel, um, I feel a little undisciplined at the moment. I do, I mean, I can be, let's say, and when things are going well, I generally am. Um, sometimes it's the hardest to be disciplined when I'm casting about. Um, but even then, you know, five to seven pa handwritten pages a day, even if it's just flailing, is, I guess, a kind of discipline, and, um, and I, I do try to do that. I want to open this up in a minute, but I just want to ask you before we do to talk about the creative process around your next book, which you mentioned you're working on. We've been talking about something that's been finished for a long time. That's at a stage where presumably its, it's shape is not fully clear. Tell us a little bit about where you are with it and how it's going. Um, okay. I mean, uh, I guess... I guess it, you know, I, I did write one thing after Goon Squad, um, which, which is about a character from it, um, which I felt very good about and which is structurally kind of radical, but I knew that that wasn't a new book. I'd had this long-standing idea, which in fact I was already sort of working on mentally anyway when I started writing Goon Squad, which is kind of a, it's a, I think, a historical novel set in New York in the 30s and 40s, at least in part. And so... Um, I guess the point I'm at now is just the point of generating material, which for me is very much what actually reveals what the story is. And one thing I found at the beginning with other books is that there's often a kind of hangover from the previous book. So I, I remember this really vividly when I was working on The Keep, because it was, it was a gothic thriller, I knew that, and yet I was trying to use a voice that was sort of like the voice of Look at Me, which was kind of urban and a little sardonic, and basically that voice would find this gothic material kind of stupid, and that was really coming through. Yeah. So it, it, the voice seemed to be saying, the subtext seemed to be, this is really dumb, which is not really the message you want to be sending to a reader. Um, so I was in agony. And, um, and then there came a point where suddenly a totally different voice approach sort of emerged, and it was such a relief. And that was when I, I actually thought, I can write this. So I would say that I don't have a voice, really, for this new book. And I'm finding, I think what I had thought was that it would be really fun to write a book set in the past, but, you know, flowing back and forth to the present constantly. But that idea, I think, has been revealed as a kind of goon squad hangover. <laughs> and it actually, it's funny because it just doesn't work at all. Huh. It, it's, it's really, um, it's sort of lurching and, and dull when I've tried to do that. So... I know some things that I'm not going to do. <laughs> now the question is, what am I actually going to do? Um, and I, I, you know, that's the point I'm at. I've certainly been here before, yeah. but it's never all that fun to feel like I'm sort of flailing around and not, not really getting at what I, what I want to do yet, or, and not even knowing. I remember you telling me that you, you often have a kind of central image or a kind of shape that that helps you think about and or, organize a book. Do you is there that for this next project yet? Not really. No, I think that's part of the kind of crystallizing of form that is a really good sign and a sign that there's, you know, there's a kind of cohesion happening. I really don't have that. And and another sign of not having reached that point is that we talked about compression and like the suggestion of some a larger shape. And what I often feel when things aren't really working yet is exactly the opposite. It's like I'm throwing tarps and nets everywhere, but I can't encompass what I'm trying to do. It's like an inversion of what you hope for, which is 
small things suggesting something much larger that you don't even need to say. And what I feel when things aren't working right is often a frantic um, evoking of, so, of something big, but I can't even seem to get all the way around it, and, and I just end up using a lot of words. So it's, it's not a fun moment, but, you know, I, I, you just have to get through it. That's, that's how it goes. You'll be in the shower one day soon, and it'll, it'll look hard. <laughs> I've been using a lot of hot water, <laughs> waiting for lightning to strike. 